Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Brian Bagwandan. He's the co-founder and CEO of Recalibrate Solutions, and we're going to talk about uh, his work there. So, uh, Brian, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me, Rich. If you would, tell me a bit about your background, and then I want to ask you about Recalibrate. Okay. I like to say I was trained as a scientist and an engineer. I have a couple of degrees in physics, one from Indiana University, one from Purdue University. Uh, I went to work after that second physics degree at Eli Lilly as a central nervous system physiologist. And the only thing that physiology and physics have in common, I think, is, is they both start with a P. But I really felt like a fish out of water, and I tried to combine the two disciplines. And I ended up uh, pursuing a PhD in biomedical engineering from the University of Washington with a focus on medical instrumentation. And so I almost immediately, actually during my graduate program, I started working with a startup company uh, in Seattle and, and then went to a small product development firm and then eventually left that for another startup firm, and then another startup firm, and then another startup firm, and here we are. So it's kind of my story professionally and educationally. Yeah, it sounds like you were looking for a home where you can uh, utilize your talents and your degrees. Yes, absolutely. And I I think physics is a great background because it really tells you how the physical world works. And, uh, you know, if you want to apply, really applies to anything that you see and do and feel and, and, and experience in the world. And uh, biomedical engineering is a nice way to um, combine that with the life sciences. Well, excellent. Tell me about Recalibrate. So Recalibrate Solutions is an interesting story. I moved to to uh, Denver, Colorado about five years ago, and I was invited to participate in a what I would call a venture generator and um, uh, called 101010. It's, it now goes by the name X Genesis. But 101010 at the time stood for 
10 wicked problems, 10 CEOs, and 10 days. And the, uh, it was founded by a serial entrepreneur, a very successful individual who wanted to try and encourage entrepreneurs to focus on some of the most difficult problems that we experience in our society. And so he would curate 10 problems or his organization would curate 10 problems, create a dossier for each of those problems, and then recruit 10 CEOs or previous CEOs who were between opportunities. And he would recruit a group of volunteers. They would all come together for 10 days in a public forum and he would bring in subject matter experts for each of the 10 problems. And each of the CEOs had the opportunity to choose a problem and then were assigned a, a dedicated team. And they would spend 10 days thinking about good product founder fit solution, market-based solution to one of those 10 problems. They would also brainstorm a little bit about where the weaknesses were and sort of do a due diligence on the solution. Think about how they could prototype those solutions and determine whether or not they, uh, where the weaknesses were, present that to, or put that prototype in front of 10 to 12 users, and then determine whether or not it was a, a good solution. And after 10 days, CEOs made a presentation, a public presentation to the public at large. And it was during that, what would you call it, forum, that 101010 forum that uh, Recalibrate was really born. One of the subject matter experts that came and presented was uh, on the problem of toxic stress. And I knew those words, but I, I really didn't understand what that meant. And it turns out toxic stress is the overstimulation of a child's stress response system in the absence of a stress buffer. And usually that buffer takes the, uh, the form of a caring relationship with an adult who has agency in the world. And anyway, I really was looking at this problem, had no idea that it existed. I mean, most people think that childhood is a less than stressful time of life, but it turns out that as many as one in five, uh, one in six kids have a dysregulated stress system. They're overstimulated and they don't have the appropriate buffer to regulate. And, and it has very... Well, what what, what, what does this mean? Like, like what's a down-to-earth example of you know, a child, like what's a typical stress for a child? What's a good regulation mechanism versus a poor one? Well, that's an interesting question. Let me back up a second. And let me, I absolutely want to address that question. May have taken on too much in your first question. So I met this subject matter expert. We decided that there needed to be a way to uh, identify kids who were dysregulated in their stress response. And I said, why don't we try and come up with a, uh, a five minute or a point of care rapid test? that can do an assessment of a kid's uh, stress response system. And so that, that's what Recalibrate Solutions is all about. Now let's talk about what is toxic stress? What does that mean? And, and how does it manifest itself? So if you, you know, there's good stress, there's tolerable stress, and there's, there's toxic stress. And when we talk about stress in this context, we really mean what is, what is stress from a physiological point of view? So uh, it turns out that waking up in the morning from the standpoint of your physiology or your biology, that's a stressful event. You've been at rest. You've been, your whole body and the organism is, and all the organisms are quiescent. And all of a sudden there's a loud sound coming into your ears when the alarm goes off. 
there's a rush of photons into the receptors in the eye when you open your eyes and the light comes in. Your muscles have to tense and flex when you stand up. And that's stressful, but it's good stress. And it turns out that the stress response system responds to that by an injection of stress hormones that really allow us to get up in the morning, face the day, get dressed, brush our teeth, you know, have breakfast and, and get ready to go. So that's an example of good stress. Tolerable stress might be something like, um, you know, I have to give a presentation and I'm nervous about it, but that's okay because that nervousness, that stress, that anxiety can motivate me to actually really be prepared and really practice. And so that's a tolerable stress. But when stress, another really good example of, of the healthy stress that our bodies are designed to to deal with is, let's say I'm taking a hike in the woods and a mountain lion crosses the trail. And uh, as soon as I see that, it's a threat and my body responds very quickly. My eyes dilate, the blood vessels to my, to my, uh, to my core and my trunk actually uh, contract and the blood vessels to my extremities uh, start to dilate. So I have, you know, my heart is pumping harder and the hair on the back of my neck stands up and I am alert and I am ready to either bite or flee, depending on what the, um, what the situation calls for. And my physiology is ready for that because of the stress hormones that have been released. When that threat is removed, then within about 20 minutes, everything returns to normal. And that is a very healthy stress response. However, it can be extremely damaging, especially for the developing child, if that mountain lion lives in their home or in their school or on the way to school or fill in the blank. And so before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. There are events... And there are responses that different children have during the developmental years that can, that can turn on the stress response system. And if it's not buffered to return to normal, then you start to see damage. So about 22 years ago, we discovered this issue. And what we realized is some of the events that were identified 20 years ago were loss of, loss of a caretaker through divorce through incarceration, through death, loss of a, what would I call it, a pseudo caretaker, like a grandparent or an uncle or a close friend, living with mental illness in the home, living with, with drug abuse in the home. Of course, there's the normal sort of culprits that you might expect, physical, sexual, emotional abuse, neglect. Today, I think there are some other, other activities that can create stress in kids uh, that's somewhat unrecognizable and was 20 years ago, certainly digital platforms, 
social media and acceptance on social media, digital bullying. So, and it turns out that when we define neglect, for instance, uh, we might want to think it's somebody over there, but, but it turns out, let me give you another example, a military family, which is intact, a happy marriage, a healthy family, and one parent is deployed, it turns out that when the other parent who stays behind is left as a single parent, all of the symptoms or uh, indications that you would expect to see from neglect show up in the children. And so this is not a situation where this is those families that are abusive to their kids. This is those families to, that don't care enough or somehow are on the wrong side of something. Why is that? Because the the parent is just by definition continually stressed, taking care of the kids by themselves. And so well, well, that, that, the you know, great, great question. I think that part of it is just the load that used to be shared by one or used to be shared by two is now shared by one. And for all intents and purposes, you've gone to, you know, it's the loss of a parent. Effectively, what's happening is the loss of a parent. Despite the fact that the parent is still alive, they can't be seen. They're not, they, they can't help in the household, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and this can happen for kids. We've been able to record it in kids as early as 18 months, but we think that it probably can happen in kids as early as six months because the stress response hormones are actually shared with the child in the womb. And so if you have well, a, right? Go yeah, ahead. Has anyone looked at what immediately came to mind as mothers that breastfeed, even if they only do it for six months or a year, all the stress hormones probably go into the breast milk. Yep. And I would guess that maybe breastfeeding cohorts versus non, it might be even worse. That's an interesting point. You know, there is research that, that shows that kids tend to mirror their caretakers' stress levels, but don't know of any specific studies that were looking at, at hormones that came through breast milk. But certainly you've set the stage through the placenta in utero with the child because you're, you know, if mom's got free stress hormones floating through her, you know, coursing through her veins, then they're coursing through the child's veins as well. Yeah. So, so I'm going to stop there and let you ask any questions for clarity that you might have, because I can talk about this all day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Are you gathering longitudinal data? Are you following like single parent families, you know, from birth to a certain age? And if so, like longitudinally, what are you seeing? Great. The stress great keeps question. up for a long time. What happens versus short? Okay. So the short answer to your question is yes. It turns out this, that the subject matter X came and spoke at the 101010 program. Uh, was the head of the psychology department at the University of Denver. She has spent more than 25 years looking at stress system development in kids and also intervention therapies that can help regulate kids more. Her name is uh, Sarah Watamora. And, and following the program, I developed a relationship with Sarah. I looked at what she was doing and, and she is now the co-founder of Recalibrate Solutions. At the time, uh, and this was back in 2017, 2018, uh, Sarah was just finishing a five-year longitudinal study following 250 families and looking interventions for kids zero to five. And primarily, she was looking at some high-risk families, and she was collecting, she was collecting saliva samples uh, from those kids and, doing, and uh, taking hormone panels within those saliva samples 
and correlating that with what she was seeing uh, with regard to uh, stress in the kids' lives. And, and she was also uh, simultaneously following caretaker stress levels, and she was collecting samples from them as well. So the short answer to your question is yes, we've done longitudinal studies. There have been multiple longitudinal studies done. We first came to understand this problem back in 1998, which is 24 years ago. Uh, so there's a, there is really a ton of data that has been published about this. The real issue, I think, is that we don't monitor it during child development on a regular basis. And that's really the, that's, that's really the gap that, that, um, that Recalibrate is trying to close. We, when, when a child goes to see a pediatrician at every wellness visit, which is, you know, in the first five years of life, it's every, I think it's every four months, there's about 15 recommended wellness visits during the first five years of life. We monitor the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, the autonomic nervous system, the visual system, the auditory system. We look at cognitive development. We look at physical development. We're monitoring all of these systems to make sure that the child is developing in a healthy and normal way, but we never look at the stress response system. And we've never really had a way to look at the stress response system. And my co-founder, Sarah, has been looking at the stress response system and the development of the stress response system in her research for over 20 years. And it just has not, it, it has never really been presented in the clinic. And that was not really her, her strength. That was not what she, you know, I, I went to help her out at one point at the end of that longitudinal study. And she sent 1,800 saliva samples to Germany because it was the least expensive place for her to have this hormone panel done. And I said, Sarah, why don't you just develop a point of care rapid test? And she said, I had no idea you could do something like that. And I said, I have been involved in medical device development during the 25 years you were developing or you were studying the stress response system. That's what I do. And that is really how the company was born. You know, we decided that we would, we would create that test. And so that's what we've done. Okay. So people take the test. Is it a, is it a saliva swab and what kind of things does it show? What results? So it is a saliva swab. We work with raw saliva and we're looking primarily at cortisol, which is the most um, sort of the gold standard stress hormone, the fight or flight hormone. And it ha it's bounded on the upper side and on the lower side. And if you want to think about this in terms of how it might express itself in kids, let's take, um, let's take school age kids and you might find the child that is uh, hyperactive or vigilant, that can't sit still, that has uh, struggles with attention deficit. Maybe that is the result of, of a dysregulated stress system that's producing too much cortisol. And so that kid is on high alert all the time and disruptive and, and not, not good influence in the classroom. On the other side of the spectrum, if the system gets overtaxed, it will begin to shut down. And if it shuts down, then you stop producing cortisol and it, or I shouldn't say stop, but you produce very, very low levels and there's a lower boundary of what's normal. And that might be what you, what we call the disaffected youth, the youth that can't be motivated by punishment from grades or punishment from detention or punishment from parents or, uh, you know, fill in the blank. So those are the two bounds that you might see that oftentimes we may misdiagnose 
as something else. And we might be asking the question, what is wrong with that kid? And maybe what we should be asking is what happened to that kid? And is there a way that we could change what's going on in that child's physiology that would help regulate their stress response system? So, and in terms of long-term consequences, because you made reference to this earlier, Rich, what does it mean for a child to experience a dysregulated stress system? Well, I'll throw a few numbers at you. I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but if stress dysregulation goes on in a child and is not addressed and their system is not recalibrated, as a child, it's been shown that flooding the frontal cortex with with excess cortisol will keep the development of executive function from occurring. And so executive function is the ability to synergize memory, planning, and analysis, cost-benefit analysis, planning, you know, that cost-benefit analysis that maybe I need to wait because in waiting, something better may happen. And then this idea of memory has to, uh, you know, fits into that. And if you think about the number of times that you use your memory, your analysis, and your planning skills together, which is what in child development we call executive function, you'll begin to realize how important it is that every child have that and how important that is for learning and for your academic career child. What are children like that are under the stress? What behaviors do they exhibit? Like when kids are really tired, they may get you know, a burst of energy. When adults are tired, they slump and get tired. So high cortisol persistently in an adult, what does that look like versus a kid? Well, I think you can find it in, in you know, in kids that um, that that are constantly misappropriating their energy. That you know, we sometimes we we medicate them. You know, we've we've seen this uptick in in diagnoses of ADD and ADHD uh, in the schools, and and I think there's evidence to suggest that maybe those ch- children are not. They really don't have the the attention deficit disorder is is merely a symptom of a dysregulated stress system. Um, So you're going to see them acting out. You're going to see them unable to pay attention. You're going to see them distracted, bothering other children. You're going to see them easily agitated, being disruptive on the playground, uh, getting into altercations with other students. So those are some of the things that you might see. And the other things that you might see on the other end of the spectrum that I talked about are kids that are not motivated to perform. And so you see a decrease in performance. You see grades slumping. You see kids not finishing school. But let me just keep going here for a second because because there's some long-term consequences. You see, a dysregulated stress system, if gone unchecked, will disrupt brain development. And I, I, I sort of went into some detail there with executive function as an example. But also, a dysregulated stress system will begin to disrupt the development of the immune system. And so longer term, you a child who who has a dysregulated stress system as an adult will have one and a half times more likely to be diagnosed with diabetes, two times more likely to be diagnosed uh, with a terminal cancer, two times more likely to have heart disease, two and a half times more likely to have a stroke, and four times more likely to have pulmonary disease. So there's a huge burden that comes because in childhood, the development of the immune system was compromised and it was never caught and as a consequence, long-term, we begin to see some of these repercussions. So you've got the learning issues, you've got the mental health and wellness issues, and you've got physical health issues that occur long-term. And they all 
are a consequence of what happened in childhood. Since you're doing this test, I know two people whose cortisol responses appear to be reversed. So it's not highest in the morning. It appears to get higher as evening comes. Oh, Have you observed that in any of your, uh, you know, swab returns? And if so, what does that do? We, we have not. Now, there are, you know, that's frankly sounds like a endocrine disorder as opposed to a stress dysregulation that is a consequence of some sort of either environmental or um, issue or a lack of resilience on the on the part of the child. Uh, sounds sounds like a, a bit more complicated issue. Do, you, do these people that you're referencing? Um, oh, they're both adults. Yeah, they're both yeah. adults, and their their cortisol seems to be reversed. I don't know if there's any other under, underlying issues, but I guess that leads to the question too: with when you get swab results, are there certain results that correlate with additional problems, not just you know total stress? Yeah. So there are a couple of disorders that are well characterized. They primarily show up in adults, young adults and older adults, uh, Cushing syndrome and Addison's disease. And, and one is the overproduction of cortisol and the other is the underproduction. So you've got, you've got hypercortisol and hypocortisol um, results. But, but what we're looking for is a little different. And, and what we've built is an important point. What we've built is not a, a diagnostic test. What we've really tried to design is a monitoring tool. In an ideal world, we'd like to monitor the stress response system, perhaps through a wearable, right? I would really like to have a motion picture, but but right now the technology only allows me to get snapshots. Like a, like a continuous cortisol monitor as an yeah. analog to a CGM? Yeah, that would be great. Some of the wearable stress monitors use surrogate markers. So for instance, um, you've got Spire and you've got Calm are wearable sensors. And what they're looking at is they look at body temperature, excuse me, they look at heart rate. I'm trying to think if they look at anything else, but you know, sometimes you can regulate yourself when you're stressed by doing exercise. And so if, if you've got one of these wearables on, it might look at your heart rate and say, your heart rate's going up. And it might look at your body temperature and say, your body temperature is going up. You must be very stressed. And uh, in fact, you're just at the gym trying to make sure that you're not very stressed. So many of these, you know, surrogate markers have these consequences where it's somewhat indiscriminate. When we look at cortisol, we're looking directly at the, we're looking at the output from the stress response system. So it's a direct measurement. Now, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about healthy stress, tolerable stress, and toxic stress. And because there is a healthy stress response system that can cause a spike in cortisol, child falls on the ground, you get into, you get into an argument with your, with your caretaker, your parent, or, or someone who's with you. Uh, these things you would expect to see a spike in cortisol. You lose a loved one. This is something where you would expect to see a depression of cortisol release. So one of the things that has to be considered as a monitoring tool is we have to we have to make it inexpensive enough that if there was an acute event that changed the output of the stress response system, we can take note of that and we throw the test away. But you know, I would prefer to be throwing away dollar bills as opposed to fifty dollar bills in this kind of situation. So. What we want to do is bring this test into the pediatrician's office for a few dollars and 
and ask them to conduct the test at every wellness visit, at every at every developmental assessment that they do, uh, which is at those wellness visits, at the regular physicals, et cetera. What if I go to my pediatrician, this becomes standard, and then either I refuse or you know, my child gets back results that their stress is elevated and this leads to CPS coming to investigate me because the doctor is implying that, oh, I must be stressing my child out or something's wrong. Do you see anything going wrong with a protocol like that to put in place? You are connecting dots very quickly, and I, I certainly can appreciate that. One of the things that we have found over the years, and especially I, I speak more of my co-founder, Sarah, uh, as she goes into these homes, it, it turns out that most of the children that she has been exposed to who are dysregulated, the caretakers are interested in taking care of their kids. It's really a small minority that are being abused and that are being deliberately neglected. And so there is a certain percentage where, you know, CPS probably does need to to get involved if there's physical abuse, if there's sexual abuse going on. And sometimes it's by one parent or a family member, and it's unbeknownst to the caretaker, right? I mean, how many stories have we heard about kids who were abused by their dad or their stepdad and they, and mom didn't know about it? and uh, or the uncle or the next door neighbor. So there can be situations where things are uncovered that are unpleasant, but uh, I think the majority and the vast majority of kids who are suffering are not in environments like that. They're in situations where they do have parents who care for them, but but they're either, well, I mean, they're, they're really on both sides of the spectrum. This is not a, um, a malady that only exists for one side of the socioeconomic spectrum. You know, there you can see stress dysregulation, infants and, and toddlers, because they have multiple caretakers. So you have a, because when kids come into the world before they can talk and before they know what's normal, they're using their senses to try and understand how this world works. And if you have a wealthy family that ends up having multiple caretakers, And when a child cries, they have an immediate response and there's someone there trying to understand what they need and help them with their needs. And you have another caretaker who is on the docket who doesn't behave that way. It's very confusing to the child. And the child then says, well, this is an unpredictable world and I'm scared. I don't know how to handle that. And so when I cry right now, am I going to get a response or not? I don't know. And it'll be scary if whatever I'm crying about might be more threatening now, you know, than the last time I was crying. So that's a another form of stress dysregulation comes from performance anxiety. Some of the there's a study done a few years back on STEM schools and STEM schools that were outperforming on every count and on every level. The students were were really doing great. But when you came in and, and started looking at their stress levels. It turns out many of them were totally stressed out and really needed, you know, elevated heart rates, anxious, depressed, uh, scared, and probably needed help. But we called that good because of the way they were performing. It's a, we're trying to take the stigma out of it by not assuming that we know based on our external view of things, we know whether or not this kid is stressed or not stressed but rather let's just measure them all. Let's find an affordable way to monitor every child 
and it just becomes a, a normal part of um, a normal part of of our understanding of how we assess healthy development. Okay, very good. Well, what's how long before this is it's available as a test? When what needs to be recommended by a doctor? What, so, you know, if someone wants to test their child, what can they do right now? Great question. Uh, we are still in development, and where we are in that development process is we currently collect samples from a cohort and we bring them back to our lab and we um, we place those samples on our test strip and we use a reader that is uh, hooked to a computer and we need to develop the handheld reader so that we can deploy those those units and we think that'll take probably nine to 12 months to develop and then another 12 months before we have collected the data we need to submit for our FDA approval. And um, so we're looking at uh, 24 to 30 months before this is something that will be in the pediatric office. Yeah. Well, very good, Brian. Thanks for your time. Where can people learn more about your work? Where can they go in the meantime and keep tabs? Well, we, you know, certainly if someone wants to reach out to me directly, I'm pretty regular in my uh, activity on LinkedIn. So they can look me up directly on LinkedIn and connect with me, or they can go to our website at recalibrate solutions with an S.com. Those are probably the two best places to, to stay in touch with us and to connect with us. Well, very good, Brian. Thank you so much for coming. And it's a very important topic and I'm glad we did the call. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.